couple of things uh, before we begin our passage today that I hope will help you and give clarity, um, especially as we cover this week's passage and next week's passage. Uh, this passage as a unit in the letter begins in chapter 5, we covered that last week, and goes through chapter 6. Most commentators view it as one section. Honestly, it's one of the more difficult passages in Scripture because it's so disjointed in the original languages. I'm not saying it's hard to understand, but I am saying that it's hard to kind of fit together. Now, last week, we talked about incest and church discipline. I know that's two of your top five favorite sermon topics uh, that we cover here at the church. This week, we're talking about lawsuits and those who, who will not inherit the kingdom. And then when I, I'm back in, in two weeks, um, we'll be discussing sexual immorality, which I'm sure wraps up your top five favorite sermons that we cover here at the church. But I want you to understand this. Why do we cover these things? One, they're in the scriptures. Uh, two, these things are abundantly important to who we are as a body of believers and who we are as a body as an individual. Uh, Two of the things that, as I talk to um, pastors and and church leaders, that is constantly brought up as areas that we hope the church will uh, reform and recall from days past in our current age is a reminder of anthropology, that is, how do we answer the question of who we are, and ecclesiology, which answers the question of what is the church? Because I feel like in our day, we've missed those things. We have applied to anthropology definitions that the world gives us. And we've done the same thing with much of ecclesiology in the sense that the church is just here to entertain you. And it's something that we partake of as a commodity, as a divine commodity. But the church is much more than that. And so we have to discuss these things because it helps us answer those two questions of who we are and who we are. Now, one of the ways that someone, some commentators put this disjointed section together is they believe, this is a minority of commentators, that this is all one story, right? That's, that's got explanatory power. That the reason Paul puts all these together, it seems like shoves them in and, and slams them in and turns the bottle together. The reason it seems like that within the text is because maybe it is one story. Maybe it is a real-life story. Maybe there's a story of um, a man who is now um, in an incestuous relationship with his father's wife, it's his stepmom, because in that day, she's probably his age. And maybe he wants to keep the money in the family. Oh, well, that would make sense because this next section is all about lawsuits that are taking place because someone's trying to get someone else's money. And maybe one of those people are uh, also hanging out with temple prostitutes, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks too. So maybe it's just one story. Um, Now, I want you to understand this. Um, Just because something has explanatory power does not mean that it's true. Okay? Most conspiracy theories have explanatory power, right? That's why people believe maybe we have a hollow earth, right? Maybe, uh, maybe there was some sort of conspiracy uh, with some sort of uh, terrorist attack, right? Maybe we didn't land on the moon. Just because something has explanatory power doesn't make it true. And unfortunately, the reason I bring that up is that many in the church 
fall prey to things that have explanatory power, but that doesn't make them true. It just might be a story that makes it easier to fit together. So what we're going to do today is we're not going to treat this text in the middle of it like one huge story. We're going to, we covered last week, we sliced that up individually. We're going to cover this week, and then we're going to cover in two weeks. I'm gone next week. My, my dad is getting an award at his university, so we're going to be good sons and hang out with him for the weekend. Um, but when I get back in two weeks, we'll cover that section, but it's all one unit. So what I'm going to do today is we're going to cover the section on lawsuits, but we're also going to look at the transitions too, because Paul didn't put those transitions in there to just be like, aha, transition time, right? He actually puts those in there for a reason, so we're going to look at the meat and the two buns as we look at it today, okay? So that's the plan. Please stand for the reading of the Word of God. We're going to start at 1 Corinthians 5.13 and work our way to 6.11. Hear the reading of the Word of the Lord. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law, a law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor, idol- uh, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, or inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we dive into a section that falls kind of within um, what seems to be a broader section, we ask that you would give us wisdom to see how that pertains to us now, uh, to challenge us in areas uh, where we have either false beliefs or false practices, and that we would be made more and more in your image because of it. Lord, we ask that the word of God would be a mirror to us, a mirror to our heart, and so we could uh, pierce that with the very word of God. In your son's name I pray, amen. He begins by answering the first question. That's, that's the opening of 6.1. He begins by answering the first question. Paul here loves rhetorical questions. Uh, we've already seen this very clearly in the passage. So much so, I had a really smart Alex student. I'm sure none of you teachers have ever had that before. We're in the midst of a conversation. He dropped 10 rhetorical questions in a row. And when somebody called him out on it, he just went, well, I'm being biblical, right? He was being Pauline in that moment. And so we see 10 rhetorical questions here. But the first question in this section is the top bun on the sandwich. In the Greek, the first word in this section is the word dare. And he puts that Greek word there, that verb there, to make it very clear what he's saying. That how dare you? 
bring lawsuits, go before the unrighteous instead of the saints. But we have to ask the question, who are the unrighteous and who are the saints in this, pers- in this category? So let's talk about the unrighteous first. Believe it or not, there are three possibilities of what on earth Paul is talking about here. Paul could be labeling the unrighteous just as those that are not believers. The difference between someone who is in Christ and outside of Christ. That's how he could be labeling the unrighteous. Um, The other way that Paul could be using the term unrighteous is because he knows the Corinth legal system. I know this might be shocking to you because in America it never happens, but sometimes there are judges that are in it not for the partiality of the law. Everyone be shocked with me for a moment. I know. Shocking, right? But sometimes a judge is in it for their own pocketbook, especially in a society that's very class-based and very ethnic-based, right? If you're part of the right people and you have the right amount of money, then you might get the right um, judicial uh, outcome in your favor. Shocking, right? So Paul could just be talking about just unrighteous judges. They're corrupt. Why would you take your lawsuits before corrupt judges? Or, third possibility, Paul's just talking about both of them. They're not only corrupt, but they're also not Christian. And it's all in comparison to the saint. The saint. It's the second person. Now, who is a saint? Who is the saint? That would be you. You. Think about the last few weeks, right? We've, we've answered the question, whose are you? And a Christian's response to that is, we are Christ's. We've asked about who should you imitate. And if you're a Christian, it should be we imitate Christ. And when we say those things, uh, but we don't do those things or believe those things, we find ourselves in last week's discussion on church discipline. But this week, Paul is reminding us that we are Christ's ambassadors to the world. World, As unified with Christ, we are saints. Well, what is the definition of a saint? AJ, I'm, I'm all about English. Give me a definition of a saint. The, the Greek word hagios, which means this, okay? It means a holy one, someone set apart. A longer definition is someone who has been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Whew, okay. This is really important. This is really important. This is who you are. You are not defined by your sin. A sin that you've committed or a sin that you desire. You're not defined by your job. You're not defined by your hobby. You're not defined by your political party or a club. You might partake of those things, but you, at your core, if you are in Christ, you are a saint. Everyone say it with me on the count of three. I am a saint. On the count of three. One, two, three. I am a saint. Man. If we just let those, that identity wash over us on a regular basis, how could we not live changed lives? If we went to work this week, and when conflict comes up at work, we reminded ourselves that I am a saint. 
How could that not affect the way I interact with conflict in the workplace? If I go to school this week or I'm in the classroom this week as a teacher and someone's driving me nuts and we remind ourselves in that moment, I am a saint. How does that not affect the way that we live? If we're ticked off at our children or parents and we remind ourselves in that moment, I am a saint. How does that not affect the way I engage with my children or parents? Hear me, church. Knowing who you are should affect everything you do. Knowing who you are should affect everything you do. As we're about to be reminded of in this passage, let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, 2 again. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? We see here Paul answering a question with a question, which I know all of us love it when people do that to us. But Paul's doing that here, but his question is the first reason why Christians should trust saints to judge and not the righteous world. Reason. We, you and me, will judge the world. Think about that. You and me will judge the world. What on earth does that mean? What on earth does that mean? It means that on Judgment Day, on the Day of the Lord, which is typically capitalized in most of our translations, we as the saints will participate in the judgment. And the Jews of the day believed that. If you talk to any Jew in the first century, they would have understood this. This is not something new. They pulled it from Daniel 7.22. That's what they thought the outcome of it was. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. This idea is picked up in the New Testament as well. Matthew 19.28. Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Paul's first argument for not going to earthly courts is that the church should be above the earthly courts because the saints will actually judge those judges. But not only that, the saints will judge the unseen realm too. 1 Corinthians 6.3, do you not know Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? Specifically, fallen angels, okay? Fallen angels is who we'll judge. Think about this. We will judge the fallen angels that have sinned against a holy holy God and, more than likely, over the course of our lives, have sinned against you. The very beings that have tempted you and have been at your door and have done evil things against you, you will judge as you know. We forget that in the materialistic world too often. So what makes us qualified to judge? What makes us qualified to judge? Is it because we've all received judicial training? No. Is it because that's what we're covering in Discipleship Hour? at nine o'clock, how to judge angels. No. Is it because you're smarter than the person next to you? I got some of some, I got some of these and I got some of these. 
No. You see, we can judge those inside the church because we are united by the same spirit. We are united by the same spirit. Think about what we've talked about in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, the spirit of God dwells within you. If you are in Christ, then you have access to the wisdom beyond this world. The wisdom talked about in chapter 1. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. And therefore, should have the ability to handle earthly cases. Now, um, how does this work today? How does that work today? I know you're all wondering about it. Should we set up a church court? Should we set up a church court? You want the job, Matt? Nope. What if I threw in a nice robe? A wig. Okay. What if I threw in a nice Stanley mug for Jill? Okay, he's thinking. He's thinking. It starts on Tuesday. Okay. Let's just make a distinction first between first century and now. We have criminal and civil cases here. Uh, churches do not get to judge criminal cases, right? If one of you murders another one, you don't come before me and I pronounce judgment. Be thankful. Okay? <laughs> Be thankful. Those that are breaking a state law against another person, you get to go to the state courts. However, in civil cases involving a dispute, I think it should be easy, it should be easy for two Christians to find another Christian within their church to help adjudicate the case. That is impartial. Another distinction that must be made between Paul's days and ours is that in Paul's day, there weren't any judges who were actually probably Christians. We don't hear of many. Nowadays, many judges run on the platforms of being Christians and knowing the Old Testament law. But that does not give us, that's not the reason Paul gives us not pursuing a brother or sister in Christ. He is more worried about, in this section, our witness to the world. Look at the next section with me, 1 Corinthians 6, 4 through 8. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not be, rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. We see here in this section that it's already a defeat. It's already a defeat. Maybe you've been in a situation like this. Okay, I'm not going to do a judicial situation, but I'll do something similar. Harken back to a high school classroom and a group assignment. Some of you are already sweating at those two phrases, right? It's a group of five and two people the day before the project get into a heated argument with one another over who was supposed to do what in the four weeks that this assignment has been assigned. 
some of you, I can see some of you are sweating, okay? And everyone's looking on, not knowing and wanting to take sides because they don't want to escalate. What makes this situation worse is that the two who are arguing are both professed Christians. They might as well be wearing their WWJD t-shirts, right? And one of the other group members comes up to you afterwards and says, man, so much for their faith. What is our witness to the world in the midst of conflict? The actions of the conflict become stumbling blocks to a watching world. I haven't had this situation happen, but I've had situations like it in my life. This is the testimony we give to the watching world when we engage in lawsuits with another brother or sister in Christ. We say, Christ's sacrifice has had an impact on my life only as much as I'm willing to be wronged. There's the line. Christ's Christ's sacrifice, that doesn't impact this. Christ himself demonstrated against this idea while he lived. Uh, Peter makes that clear in 1 Peter 2, 19-21. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and there are beaten when you are when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow him in his steps, the steps of suffering. You see, Paul calls for believers not just to forego their rights, but to willingly to suffer injustice and abuse rather than to take their disputes before pagan courts. Paul calls for believers not just to forego their rights, but willingly to suffer injustice and abuse rather than take their disputes before pagan courts. This is a call to be Christian, to not repay evil with evil, 1 Thessalonians 5.15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to the one, to one another, and to everyone. We are to not take vengeance, Romans 12.19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We're not to curse one another, Romans 12 again. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. We are to endure persecution for the hope that others will be one to Christ, 1 Corinthians 4. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. And a preview, again, of one of our Discipleship Hour classes. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be patient in tribulation. That's much easier said than done. And be constant in prayer. Hear me. If you are a saint an ambassador of Christ, then what witness do you deliver to the world based on your actions? If you're a saint, if you're an ambassador of Christ, what witness do you deliver to the world based on your actions? Uh, Let me make a caveat here that I think needs to be made clear in our culture. Uh, Too many times the list of verses I just listed are, are used to justify abuse instead of deal with it. 
I've heard, I can't count, the number of stories of women in abusive relationships when they, when they bring that abuse before the church leadership, they are told that they are win, to win their husband to Jesus by just enduring it. That is not in the scriptures, and that is not loving. Allowing someone to continue in their sin unconfronted, that's unloving. Matthew 18 makes it clear what's to happen in those situations. We're to confront to call to repentance, and if they will not repent, we are to cast them out. And since they have demonstrated that they are not Christians, we can then let the criminal courts deal with them. Most of the passages I just quoted, I looked them up in context, have to deal with non-believers abusing believers. When a believer abuses the believer in the church, the church is to step in and call for repentance and help. To make clear to the watching world that you can't do this. It's not acceptable here. That's not our witness. Too often it's not. But the passage makes clear the witness to the world for Christ is important. And we need to remember that in our conflicts. In all our conflicts we are to remember that. Yet it is not only lawsuits that bring a bad witness to the world in need of a savior. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 begins the beginning of the transition. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Let's talk about the kingdom of God here. This passage concludes today's passage, but it's also the launching point for the discussion we're going to have in two weeks. It's transitionary, but it's also the other end of the sandwich that we talked about earlier. So we're going to look at this passage in light of the meat we just covered, and then look at it in light of the meat that we're going to cover in two weeks. For those of you that like the meat sandwich, it's, it's a Big Mac. It's a Big Mac here, okay? I had that double Big Mac recently. Wow. Good stuff. So this passage in particular, this transition, deals with intoxicating sin, both sexual and alcoholic, sin of the body, and sin involving wealth, sin between members of Christ's body. Neither will inherit the kingdom of God. Understand this, okay? It is not that any person who ever commits one of these sins will not inherit the kingdom. That's not what it's saying. Paul is thinking of persistent rebellion against God, not temporary backsliding or lapse of a believer. For many of you, you may find yourself on this list this morning. And you need to turn from your sin. But many of these sins, and you know it if you've been in it, are both financially and bodily addicting. I would argue that most sin is addicting. At minimum, it turns chemicals on in the brain that cause us to want to engage in that sin again. Unfortunately, that leads us to justify the trap of sin over and over and over again. I I can't tell you, I literally can't, the number of individuals I have counseled that have found themselves in a relationship that seemed right at the time, it was not, 
but sex gave them the illusion that the relationship was okay. Because that was good. Everything else was not very good, but that was good. And I've watched enough interviews with swindlers and thieves, and they will tell you that to steal and to con is very much an addiction. You get a high from that. When Jesus says that we are dead in our sin, another text of scripture, he's serious. He's very serious. This is, these are addictive practices, especially things that will harm ourselves and make us feel alive. That's all that sin does. It gives the illusion of feeling alive. My worry is you are hearing these words from me and you're thinking of yourself, AJ, I'm hooked on these things and I can't do anything about it. I'm hooked on these things and I can't do anything about it. But the next verse says something very profound. Hear these words. And such were some of you. I've been on the 1 Corinthians 6 list. I've lived on that list. I justified engaging in many of those things because it made me feel good. And I convinced myself I could engage in those things and grow in my faith at the exact same time. I told myself that. We tell ourselves a bunch of stupid things when we're sinning. But I needed to repent. And when I repented and turned towards God, I needed to see myself as God saw me. As what? As a saint. As a saint. It all comes back to that again. Look at the whole verse. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It is saying right there, I am a saint. I am set apart. I was one way, and now I'm another. Three verbs are highlighted in this section. I think we should look at them. Verbs are important. Wow, sorry, I sounded just like my English teacher right there. Could hear her voice as I said that. Verbs are important. These three verbs. Washed, sanctified, justified. Washed, sanctified, justified. First, if you've been on this list, you're washed from the sin that you were covered by. Those in Corinth are clean before God. They are spiritually transformed. Secondly, they have been sanctified, set apart from the godless lifestyles of the age. They have received a holy status. They are the Lord's. They are possessed by God, set apart. Thirdly, they are justified. They are declared righteous in spite of the many vices they once participated in. They have a right relationship with God. And because they are a saint, because they are a saint, they have been washed, they've been sanctified, they've been justified. They are different people than they once were. Because they're different people, they are to learn how to live differently. That's what happens. If you're a different person, 
You live differently. You can't, you can't be different if you're doing the same thing. Again, my English teacher, I hear her talking in my background. Of course, that's what different means, HA. Hey, well done. For many of you and for me, this is our story. This is our story. You were one way and now you're another. And praise be to God. Not because we like figured it out, right? We got it. We are so holy. Yeah, I'm the best. But because God has saved us. Notice how the change came about. How the washing and sanctification and justification came about. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. God offers us not only newness of life, but a new way to live and a power to do it. Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call to Jesus. Be made new. Be washed. Be sanctified. Be justified. Be a new creation. Call on the name of the Lord. And may, and may as such and such were some of you be your story. But while it's important that I begin to see myself as a saint, it's even more important to know that that is how the God of the universe now sees me. We're saints. May we live in such a way to bear that witness to the world so that Christ may be magnified, so that our neighbors may be one to the kingdom of God and our lives changed for all time. Amen? Bow your heads with me. Father God, you are an awesome God. You are an awesome God that makes a way for your people. Not just a way to you, even though that would be sufficient, but a way to live. You give us over and over again in the scripture these pictures of two ways, two trees, uh, two lives. And Lord, it is by your power and your power mainly that we can now enjoy newness of life that we can see the world in such a way that we see it the way you see it and my prayer is to begin to see ourselves the way that you see us because when we can grasp that then how can our lives not change Lord we pray for these things for people in this room Maybe they have not yet been washed, sanctified, and justified. And I pray today is the day of salvation, that they talk to me or Jack or one of the elders or the friends they came with after service. And they would come to saving faith. They would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, repent of their sin, turn to you, and walk in newness of life. But for those of us that call ourselves saints today, Lord, may we not just say it with our lips, but may we begin to believe it with our hearts and in turn Bring light to the darkness wherever you send us. Your son's name I pray. Amen. Amen.